Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. So, thank you so much for being here once again. We are back in the Gospel of John. Uh, This evening, we're gonna be looking at a set of texts that I I doubt is super familiar to a lot of you. Now, we've kind of turned the page within John's Gospel, and everything is going towards Jerusalem and towards the crucifixion of Jesus. In the last couple weeks, we've looked at the anointing of Jesus by Mary, um, where she takes this really expensive ointment and she, she puts it all over his feet and is, is tearful and just um, grateful for who Jesus is. The following week, Jesus enters into Jerusalem in what is typically known as the triumphal entry. Jesus procures a donkey for himself and rides into the town. And what most people would say is this is the kingly entrance that has been anticipated in the Old Testament. And now uh, Jesus is is doing a little bit of of teaching here in the latter half of John chapter 12. I'll be honest with you, we could have broken this up at so many points. Uh, But instead, this evening, I just wanna read a pretty good selection of text uh, for you and then give you not one, not two, not three, not even four, but five pastoral preaching points for you to consider. And as I was saying that, side note, it's Katie Foster's birthday today. Everyone turn around and wave and say, great job, Katie. Nice job, Good work. Very, very good. Um, I know that some of you have been in this space and it's been your birthday and I haven't acknowledged that. It's really a, it's hit or miss. It absolutely is. So apologies to those of you that feel looked over, but Katie, you're special. Way to go. All right, this is John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. Uh, Again, Jesus has just processed into Jerusalem on the donkey to much fanfare, although the people are divided as to whether or not they're on board or not on board. And this is the the context for this next um, passage. This is John chapter 12, beginning in verse 20. It says, some Greeks were among those who had come up to worship at the festival. That festival, you should know, is the Passover. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and made a request. Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip told Andrew and Andrew and Philip told Jesus. Jesus replied, the time has come for the human one to be glorified. This is the common English uh, version of the Bible. This is their weird translation of the son of man. If you guys have had some church history, you may have heard Jesus referring to himself as the son of man. But in the common English Bible, uh, it refers to um, It translates this phrase as the human one. So he says, the time has come for the human one to be glorified. I assure you that unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it can only be a single seed. But if it dies, 
it bears much fruit. Those who love their lives will lose them, and those who hate their lives in this world will keep them forever. Whoever serves me must follow me. Wherever I am, there my servant will also be. My Father will honor whoever serves me. Now I am deeply troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this time? No, for this is the reason I have come to this time. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd standing there heard and said, it's thunder. Others said, an angel spoke to him. Jesus replied, this voice wasn't for my benefit, but for yours. Now is the time for judgment of this world. Now this world's ruler will be thrown out. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to me. He said this to show how he was going to die. The crowd responded, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the human one must be lifted up? Who is this human one? Jesus replied, the light is with you for only a little while. Walk while you have the light so that darkness doesn't overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness don't know where they are going. As long as you have the light, believe in the light so that you might become people whose lives are determined by the light. After Jesus said these things, he went away and hid from them. The word of God for the people of God. So this is a weird passage, right? There's a lot of this uh, esoteric, ethereal, wisdomy Jesus who kind of steps back a bit and starts talking about the seed having to die in order for it to bear fruit. Uh, he talks about the light and the darkness and you only have the light for a little bit of time. There are these sort of like wisdomy Jesus sayings uh, set within this context, but maybe you also picked up on one line uh, where Jesus seems to talk about his time having come, finally. And if you're a close reader of the Gospel of John, this is a key point in the Gospel because up until this moment, Jesus has said over and over, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, it's not time yet. You can go all the way back to John chapter two where Jesus is turning the water into wine at the wedding when his mom goes and says, hey Jesus, why don't you do something about this? And Jesus replies with those really dangerous and kind of provocative lines, woman, what does this have to do uh, with me? My time hasn't come yet. Later on, we see similar verbiage being used as Jesus is, is in Jerusalem celebrating another festival uh, or is, is heading that way. He says, for you, any time is fine. He's talking to his other disciples, but my time hasn't come yet. You guys go to the festival. I'm not going to this one because my time hasn't yet come. Jesus does, in fact, end up at this festival where he says again, they wanted to seize Jesus, but they couldn't because his time hadn't yet come. He spoke these words while he was teaching in the temple area known as the treasury. No one arrested him because his time hadn't yet come. All through the first handful of chapters of this book, we see this sort of um, 
timepiece that's set up where the time for Jesus has not yet come for him to go into Jerusalem to be crucified and to finish the work that his father has given him to accomplish. But here in our passage in chapter 12, it says the time has come for the Son of Man. The time has come for Jesus to move on into this next phase of ministry where he will be glorified, which begs the question, what has changed? What was true in the beginning where Jesus keeps saying, it's not time yet, it's not time yet, to finally now Jesus saying, okay, we're going to move into this next phase of ministry. Most scholars would alert us to the fact that as this uh, set of text is introduced, it says some Greeks were among those who had come up to worship at the festival. And everything seems to hinge on the fact that it's not just the Jewish people, but now there are non-Jewish Gentiles that are wanting to be with Jesus, to see what Jesus is all about. Some Greeks show up and, and sort of move this story in a different direction. One New Testament scholar says, the appearance of Gentiles wishing to see, maybe even wishing to believe in Jesus, it indicates that it is time for him to lay down his life. He continues and says, this is so theologically important that the writer never tells us if they got to see Jesus. I don't know if you picked up on this, but the Greeks show up, the Gentiles show up and they say, we wanna see Jesus. And Philip goes and finds Andrew and then Philip and Andrew go and find Jesus. And then Jesus launches into this weird talk about like a seed must fall into the earth and die before it bears fruit. And we have no freaking idea if Jesus ever finds these, these Greek people and say like, all right, let's, let's talk. You know, here I am, what are your questions? It just goes into this very different direction. But for Jesus, this is an important moment in his ministry where now the world is wanting to see what he's about and he is moving towards the job before him in Jerusalem. In fact, later on in this passage, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, which even the author of this book says, that's code for Jesus saying, I'm going to be crucified. And when I do, or when this happens to me, I will draw everyone to me the first surprise preaching point in this story that no one was really anticipating is the fact that what Jesus is about is for everyone. You might even be able to say all, or some people might say them, because as we look at this story in its first century context, this was, this was a bit tentious. That's, I don't think that's a word. This was, thank you. This was a bit tense of a moment. <laughs> Let's run that back, edit. Uh, this was a, 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 a tension-filled moment where for the Jewish audience, they're expecting their Messiah, their king, to deliver them from Roman oppression. But what Jesus is saying is, I've come to do a work for everyone. And for ancient readers, this might have really rubbed against the grain here, which got me thinking about this dividing line that even in our own context, we are still so adept in believing that we are the us and that other people that don't belong are them. And there's a dividing line between who's in 
and who's out. I don't know if this is just something that I keep seeing over and over and jamming into the pages of the New Testament, or if this is something that's actually uh, being brought out of the text. I do know that in the first century Jewish culture, this was a bombshell of a moment where the Messiah is saying, I have a job for everyone, for all people, for Jew and non-Jew alike. The things that God is about now, it goes beyond just the covenant family of Israel, and I wish that there was a way that we could capture that. As I was thinking about this, though, I believe that in our context, as I mentioned, that there's still very strong lines between us and them, and you could fill in any sort of dialogue or conversation or um, interaction that you might see on a pretty regular basis. There's one that came to mind for me, and this really only speaks to uh, the world in which I, I operate. I'm a pastor. I'm a paid Christian, as I say from time to time. So my Twitter feed and my Facebook feed and all the stuff online, like I'm just inundated with in-house Christian-y stuff. And one of the most recent in-house Christian-y things where you can firmly see a dividing line between us and them was with a well-known pastor who has a base out of Southern California, and he's sitting in front of a crew of people who are asking big questions. And the question that's posed to this pastor is, what do you think about Beth Moore? Beth Moore is a, a woman preacher, uh, she's one who has a large platform in, uh, in the United States and probably even beyond. And this panel of these older white guys sitting back just begin chuckling and saying, <laughs> my message for Beth Moore is, quote, go home. And over the next five to 10 minutes, they all just begin to draw this dividing line between who's in and who's out and what Beth Moore can do and what Beth Moore cannot do. And they feel as though they are the gatekeepers and the power structures that be that are either allowing this woman to preach or not to preach. Now, as I said, that's a really in-house, professional Christian sort of conversation, but it doesn't take you long to see that within the world in which we live, there are dividing lines between people. In fact, there's very little nuanced conversation that can happen in our context right now because you're either on side A or side B. You either vote this way or that way. You either believe this truth or that truth. There's really not a whole lot of conversation that goes on here, but one of the genius moments of what Jesus is saying is, regardless of the lines that you have built, regardless of the people that are on the other side of those lines, he says, whoever, serves me, whoever serves me, my Father will honor. Whoever serves me and follows me will be in, so to speak. And we've wasted so much time finding those lines and dividing and excluding when the gospel of Jesus seems to be bringing people in. Surprise preaching point number one. As the story continues, look at that, that's fancy Greek. 
real fancy. It says, my soul is troubled. The way that this story is, is, is told, it's, it's sort of strange in the sense that you have this um, moment where, where Jesus is saying what's, what's going to happen, and then there's this, this weird teaching in between. This is where the seed must go into the earth and die and all this stuff. But then when it comes back full circle, Jesus is saying, my soul is deeply troubled. This is John's version of a familiar story in the Synoptic Gospels where Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray before he is crucified. In each of these accounts, Jesus is at pains to communicate to God his Father, if there's any other way, let's do that. In fact, in the story in Luke's Gospel, it says that Jesus is so agonized by this that the sweat on his brow is like blood. People wonder if that means that he's actually bleeding or if that just means that he's sweating so profusely that it takes on a character of thickness like blood. Either way, Jesus is broken up here in these stories. John doesn't have this version in his gospel, but he does have a Jesus who is troubled, deeply troubled. In fact, N.T. Wright says, the word that had become flesh, that's the way that John introduces Jesus in chapter one, he says, the one in whom the Father's own love and power was truly seen, the one who healed the sick, who turned water into wine, who opened blind eyes and raised Lazarus to life, he was troubled deeply troubled, troubled right down in his heart. I know that this is a message that we've heard and maybe some of us have received, but still I think for a good number of us, it's out there somewhere, because we know that Jesus is different. We know that Jesus is the Son of God. We know that Jesus doesn't really struggle like we do. We kind of put him out there somewhere, but all throughout the Gospels, they keep this point very close by. Jesus is deeply troubled at what is about to happen. Jesus has been troubled in the past when he sees the pain in Mary's face at the death of her brother. He's moved to tears because of the tears that Mary is crying, because of his own sadness of his friend, and now Jesus is, is, is deeply moved and agonized because of what is on the periphery for him. This is super weird in the way this story is told for the time. Uh, one scholar would want us to at least uh, understand that throughout the Mediterranean world where Jesus is, is broadly set, People considered praiseworthy those heroes who faced suffering bravely, often without tears or signs of sorrow. Becoming a stereotypical manly man, and you can, uh, for the, the 30 and ups, you can immediately go to Tim Allen and start grunting and groaning. That's how far away I am from, from that stereotype. But this is something that would not be uh, celebrated within that, that first century context, a, a savior who is deeply moved, who is agonized, who is, is sweating to the point of, of blood or sweating like blood or, or crying out, who is agonized. This doesn't fit what's going on. It's super weird, but it seems as though Jesus himself is super weird, which makes this sort of part of his M.O., and hopefully you don't find that offensive. I don't think this room usually does those sorts of things, but Jesus doesn't fit the bill of what anyone is expecting at this time. He doesn't uh, 
show himself to be what everyone was anticipating. So surprise preaching point number two would be, does your theology allow room for your savior to be troubled, to be broken, to be agonized, to be anxious, to be scared? A lot of times, especially in our context, this is an oddity of the church, which I think is beginning to to be diminished. But the way that we talk about mental health and the way that we talk about depression and anxiety, a lot of times it's out there somewhere and people have to be real hushed about it because if you have that, then you must not be praying hard enough. But we have a Jesus who is is moved to the point of, of agony and anxiety as to what is coming down the road for him. I would encourage us not to put Jesus way out there so far that he has no resemblance anymore to us and the life that we live, because at least in this moment, Jesus was experiencing something that feels akin to the things that we experience to have like that thing that lives right here that just goes where, where you go, whatever, like the, the, the interview or the conversation or uh, the brokenness that's happened relationally and it just lives right here and you can't shake it and it, it seems as though that he can identify with that and this, this preaching point is not too, too big of a surprise but allow Jesus to be one who understands and empathizes with you because of the experiences that Jesus has had. Remember that Brene Brown bit where empathy is, you're down in the hole and somebody shows up and says, hey, I see you down there, I'll be down there in a minute and climbs the ladder and goes and sits with that person. And a lot of times there's this shared camaraderie between the people in the hole because they understand where each other is. In the moments in your life when you have that thing or whatever it looks like for you, Don't disallow Jesus from identifying where you are and empathizing with where you are because he is one who knows what it's like to be deeply troubled. As the story continues, uh, he he says like, what am I supposed to do here? I I know where I'm going. I am am deeply troubled, but it's not like I can can do something other than what is, is laid out before me. And he ends up by saying, Father, glorify your name. Whatever it's going to cost me, that's what I'm here to do. So dad, do the work. In the Jewish tradition, what happens next is known as a form of what is called a bot kol, uh, which is sort of like, uh, literally it would be daughter of a voice or daughter of noise. It's a secondary um, revelation of God. It's not quite prophecy, it's not quite scripture, but it's God speaking to affirm what's happening. And Jesus says, glorify your name. And, and God says, I have already done that and I will continue to do that through you. It's is like a, a moment of affirmation. I, Jesus says it's not for him, but it's for the people that hear it. Whew, but I just, I, I, whew, 
I wanna sit with that because how can you hear something like that and not also apply it to yourself? If that one's completely heretical though, just let that one go. It's saying that the, the voice of God is being uh, for the people around that they might understand what God is saying. But what's interesting in this passage is the people that are around there, they have no idea what has just happened. Some people say this is, this is thunder, and other people say this is the voice of an angel, and, and they don't know how to quantify the voice of God that says, I will glorify, and I already have glorified. They don't know how to understand the voice of God in this moment and the surprise preaching point that isn't necessarily really a surprise. When God speaks, are we able to hear it? Or do we say that's thunder, that's an angel? Now this point doesn't really fit too well because in, in the first century context, folks would expect God to be able to speak through thunder or to speak through an angel perhaps, but there's theologically in the book of John, there's some confusion that's happening here. They can't quite understand what's going on. They can't quite understand the message and they don't know what to do with it. Now here's, a, here's an insight into my line of work. Usually, when I sit with people and we have conversations, I would say 7.6 out of 10 of those conversations end up with some sort of question about how am I supposed to know when God is speaking or when it's indigestion? How am I supposed to know when God is telling me to go in a certain direction or I'm just completely off my rocker? There's this discernment that we struggle with to understand where God is leading us and pushing us and moving us because we're so, a lot of times, scared to lean into it to step out in faith on it, to begin to move in a way that God is, is urging us to move. And we will very easily attribute the Spirit's move in our life as thunder, noise, stuff. I don't know the antidote to that, but I do know that when what you have before you is loving people with more tenacity, encouraging people who are broken, standing up against the injustice that we see in the world, if we can move out in those things that are so certain, don't be so quick to say, oh, that's just noise. What if instead we moved with purpose towards whatever it is that God is leading us towards? Now that one, that's, that's not necessarily coming from the text itself, but it's, it's deeply Im embedded uh, in, in what is happening as the people don't really have an idea what's, what's being said. Uh, the fourth point, and there's really just one more, one more slide. Jesus says, uh, and we already looked at this, he says, when the human one, or when the Son of Man will be lifted up as a sort of hat tip towards the type of death that he would die, we have to remember that no one at this time was expecting their Messiah, their king figure, their, um, their overcomer, their deliverer to, to die. And when they did, 
it would be game over for those people. Jesus is, is putting the whole thing on its head and saying, the story is going in a different direction, one that you're not anticipating. So prepare yourselves, specifically prepare yourselves because where I'm going, you're gonna go too. And I know that sometimes within the church, especially within this room, that can feel heavy as if following Jesus means that we are walking off into our certain death, uh, which isn't necessarily the point here, but Jesus is saying that his followers will be like him. His followers will know the direction in which they are going, and they will know that when they step out to risk something for other people, that it might cost them something. And Jesus seems to be encouraging his people to move in that direction regardless. My fear is that what religion has become in our context and in our culture is one of ease, one of consumerism, one of picking and choosing, one of not being challenged in any meaningful way, but where we just sort of exist to the point of numbness until it's over. Jesus seems to be calling his followers to go in a different direction. Now, what I would like us not to do is to take that so extreme that we begin going absolutely nuts. That's not the point. But perhaps as you're sitting here, there's things that you have felt a stirring in your spirit to be about, and something has held you back from that. I would encourage you that perhaps now is the moment when you can move with purpose to care for whoever it is that you need to care for. As I'm looking around the room, sometimes I think when we talk in this way, what you hear me saying is, fight institutional and systemic racism, or advocate for LGBT inclusion, or you go with these really big, lofty sorts of ideas when really what might be the case, what it looks like for you to follow Jesus and to be about what Jesus is about is to care about the relationships as Jesus did throughout his entire ministry to be present for the people that were broken, to be in community with people that need you. And even as I say that, in a room like this, where we know each other and we know what's going on, maybe there's some people in the room that don't need to give, but they need to receive. Maybe there's people in the room that are waiting for us to be compelled to move with purpose so that we can go and embrace them and include them and love them as they have found themselves in the bottom of the pit and they are wanting desperately someone to say, I see you down there and I'll be with you in a minute. What we have in this passage is if, if you follow the trails, there's, there's ways that we can apply this text and hopefully maybe one or two of those can land where you are because we all find ourselves in different parts of our own stories. But I'm hopeful that as Jesus is moving uh, in the direction that he is moving, 
that we can grab some of the truth in these stories and begin uh, to apply it purposefully in our own lives as well. So for the people in the room that need to hear the bit about inclusion, that need to hear the bit that that dividing wall has been demolished and when people have said or spoken over you that you can't be here, Jesus says something completely different. For the people in the room that need to be encouraged to follow Jesus in a way that emulates the sacrifice and love that he demonstrated, I would encourage you to go and to do that, to find the people that need to be the recipients of that love and to be uh, one who, who demonstrates it and gives it freely. For others of you that need to begin to discern when the voice of God is speaking and when you're just making stuff up, to prayerfully consider what it is that God is having you to do. And through all of this, for all of us in this room, may we be encouraged in the simple truth that in the very beginning of the story, when it says some Greeks showed up and wanted to hang out with Jesus, initially they weren't necessarily part of the story, but they have been brought in. And this is where we get to be a part of the beautiful reconciliation that Jesus has achieved for us. May we too be the type of people that want to be where Jesus is, to follow wherever he is going, and to begin to speak and learn from him. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.